Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Just a reminder, I need help getting the word out about this show. If you've been finding meaning in it, please share it with someone. Share it around on social media. Talk to your friends and fellow ADHD tribe members about it. And please, provide it with an iTunes rating and review. But be sure to use that unique username or it won't work. Also, I'll be announcing the next round of parent coaching groups soon, so stay tuned. This is episode 31. Today, we're talking to Diane Wingert. Diane is a mom with ADHD who's parenting kids with ADHD. She's also a coach and psychotherapist on a mission to help others achieve their true potential through radical self-acceptance, leveraging their strengths, and creating an ADHD-friendly business and life. In this episode, we discuss how Diane's journey with ADHD, from writing her master's thesis on it in the mid-90s, to having kids with ADHD, and getting diagnosed herself later in life. It's remarkable how her story echoes the modern history of ADHD. We also discuss the varied ways the disorder can present itself, radical self-acceptance, and the difference between responsibility and blame. All right, let's get rolling. When I first learned that one of my kids had ADHD. He was eight years old. This was in the early 90s. This was before the now popular books and the, what was it, Times or Newsweek cover story. Mm -hmm. So the only kids that were being identified in the 90s and before were kids that were really severely impacted. Their behavior was very disruptive. They had a hard time performing in an academic environment and Frequent calls from the school were usually how you found out. My son was very difficult to manage at home, starting really from birth. So even though I was a young parent when I had him, I knew he was a different kind of kid, even though he was my first, and I was inexperienced because his behavior was really extreme from the beginning. So when he was identified at the age of eight, largely because the school was having a lot of difficulty managing him, I was not surprised. I subsequently had another son and a daughter. They were very different behaviorally, personality-wise. And so Brett was always the special needs child. And this was many years before my own ADHD was identified or that of my other children. At that time, Brendan, I thought I knew what ADHD was based on the behavior of this one child. The more extreme, hyperactive, impulsive, aggressive, very, very bright, but very disruptive. And in my mind, and in the minds of most parents and educators, and probably even psychiatrists at that time, those were the only kids that were getting identified. And so that was my knowledge base. Now, fast forward a couple of years, by that time I'd made the decision to go to graduate school, become a clinical social worker, and work in the field with families like mine. When I did my master's thesis, 
I, by that time, was working with school-age kids with ADHD, boys, in a social skills group. And I thought, maybe if I could spend some time with their parents instead of just the kids, it might be helpful. So I asked my preceptors, I trained at UCLA in the Neuropsych Institute, I asked if I could meet some of the parents and see if I could give them suggestions they might use at home and maybe things they could do at school and so forth. You had a kid a couple hours a week in a group, really how much impact could you have? But that's where we were in the field at that time. Right. As I started to meet more and more of the parents, especially dads, I started realizing, hey, I don't think this goes away because that was the thinking at the time is that ADHD was kind of a rare thing. It happened with boys. They were easy to pick off because they were very disruptive in the classroom. You put them on Ritalin, they got better. You put them in a social skills group so they could learn how to play well with others. You give them an IEP, your job was done. But when I started meeting these parents, I thought, I don't really think people outgrow this the way everyone's telling me they do. And so contextually, we're talking about like the late 90s? Early to mid. I went to grad school in 1993. Back then, as you've mentioned, the kids that are getting diagnosed with ADHD tend to be more severe than what we might typically expect now. We're looking at the further end of the spectrum, kids that are more aggressive, kids are more disruptive, more emotional regulation challenges, I'm assuming. Yep, absolutely. And everyone said, you need to manage these kids pretty much till they get to adolescence mm -hmm. and they'll outgrow it and they'll go on with their lives. So when I started meeting their parents with the intention of being able to help the kids more by intersecting with more areas of their life, I met some dads, I didn't meet any moms. I met some dads that were very ADHD themselves. That went against the thinking at that time. You could say, I, I, if I really wanted to give myself a big credit, I'd say I discovered ADHD in adults in 1993, but I, I won't go there. You're one of the people discovering adult ADHD in 1993 is probably what's happening, right? Yes. And so the dads that you're identifying as having ADHD, I'm assuming that it's based on that criteria I just sort of walked us through and that you walked us through earlier. They're more aggressive. They're more emotionally dysregulated as opposed to they're the ones that are more space cadet -y or more sort of impulsive and just talking and blabbing and that kind of stuff? Well, yes and no. What ended up happening was, as I started working with these parents, I thought, this is the topic I want to choose for my master's thesis. Because what I noticed was that half the dads had had really troubled lives. Mm -hmm. Alcohol and drug abuse, multiple divorces, sometimes homelessness, legal problems certainly problems with speeding tickets and parking fines and all of that. So basically employment disruption, being fired from a lot of jobs, quitting a lot of jobs, getting in fights with people, getting kicked out of their apartments. So a lot of the type of behavior you would see in somebody very much like their son, but who had grown up without the benefit of being identified and treated. However, it wasn't true of all of them, Brendan. Half of the dads and it's not exactly 50-50, but half the dads were like that. And when their child was identified, it was really heartbreaking for them because they realized, I think this is me too. And if I had only known. But the other half of the dads were successful. 
they were well-adjusted, good employment histories. They had good marital histories. They definitely had traits. The difference was, and this was the subject of my thesis, which I believe I called ADHD in adulthood, personality or pathology, question mark. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because some of the dads did really, really poorly. So there was a huge case for why identification and treatment needs to happen early in life. But the other dads, I believe, and this goes very much along with what Ned Hallowell says, you can do really well in life with ADHD if you marry the right person and have the right career path. Mm -hmm. Can I pause real quick? Because you said ADHD, personality, or pathology. Mm -hmm. By using that word pathology as it relates to ADHD, what specifically were you getting at? What I was looking at, Brendan, was that up until that time, ADHD was looked at as, I wouldn't say a serious psychiatric disorder, but one of concern. If you have this, you should be concerned. You need to be identified. You need to be treated. If you aren't, you know, all these terrible things could happen. And some of the gentlemen that I met, the fathers of these boys, had experienced all those horror stories that we hear about that make a strong case for early identification and treatment. So when I referred to it as personality or pathology, it seemed to me that just because you had ADHD, that in and of itself was not a predictor of success or failure in life. It was other factors. Some of the people did fantastic. They were super successful, super happy. They had lives that I envied. A component that underlies some of this that I almost went to and then didn't, but now what you've said is sort of making me want to go there is I like to think of ADHD as life on hard mode. Things just get more difficult. It also makes us more vulnerable to things like trauma. Mm. And early on, those more extreme cases, at least to us, what is more extreme, but back in the early 90s was just what ADHD meant. My guess is that a number of those kids either have a comorbid disorder autism, bipolar disorder, something like that, and or trauma. And that that trauma is exacerbating the ADHD. And by, and by trauma, I mean all sorts of things. It's almost up to the person's interpretation, but often it's things like abuse. It's things like having witnessed something mm-hmm. or violence. Sometimes it can just be, I was in a car accident, but often trauma can exacerbate ADHD and ADHD makes you more vulnerable if you experience trauma to not coping with it in a healthy way. I would agree. I also think something that isn't talked about often because it's, it's controversial is intelligence. Mm-hmm. A highly intelligent person, even with severe ADHD symptoms, may do better than a person of average intelligence with less severe symptoms. Right. It seems to be an advantage. So you have a, a child who has a more severe case of ADHD you've now earned this master's degree with a thesis based around ADHD. And is it personality? It's just kind of how you are, or is it pathology where it's bringing in all sorts of challenges that, that make life severely more difficult? Where do you go from there? I worked at some places like children's hospital in Los Angeles, UCLA. Over the years, I was a social worker, 18, 20 years. I worked with children and families, Then I'd work with adults. 
when I'd work with children and families and I work with adults, it changed jobs as many of us do mm-hmm. every two or three years. And I moved, kind of moved up the clinical ladder, if you will. And by the time I went into private practice, I was the clinical director of a large agency with multiple programs serving children and families. By then, my daughter had been identified in college. Now, she is the inattentive distractible. She's creative. She's a dreamer, extremely inventive. But she was always a good girl. She was in the gifted program. She had great grades. So nobody was looking for any ADHD in her, certainly not me. But by the time she got to college, she was really struggling because there's much less structure and the expectations are less clear and there's a lot more independence and personal responsibility. So that was when she kind of fell through and realized she was struggling and needed help. I was surprised that she turned out to be ADHD. Well, ADD was what she called it. But by then, we now knew a lot more in the field. Girls were being identified. Some women were being identified. And we now knew that you can have ADHD with or without the H, and girls are less likely to have the H. That story, and and we haven't even gotten to your diagnosis yet, but your story really plays out the history of ADHD and how that early focus on boys has colored the history of ADHD. Yes. You see your son get diagnosed. Now you're working with parents and you're pinpointing dads, but largely not paying attention to the moms as you go through your thesis because it's a male disorder. We're lucky you're even looking at adult men because it's really a boy disorder at the time. And then as we move through, you're sort of at the forefront of the, hey, it might be an adult male thing too. This might continue into adulthood. And now we hit 2008 or 2007 and now we're starting to get, wait, hold on. Girls and women have this too. This is not just a, a guy thing. Yeah, you know, it turns out to be pretty ironic. After I left my career in community mental health and administration and so forth, I went to being a uh, private practice psychotherapist. And I did that for eight years. And I got really, really good at identifying ADHD in adult women who had been diagnosed with something else. Mm-hmm. Usually they were diagnosed. They came to me already being di- having been diagnosed and treated. So a lot of them came with anxiety disorder diagnosis. A lot of them came with depression diagnosis. Some of them uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, a lot of eating disorders. As I got to work with more and more women, and over time I kind of specialized in working with adult women, mm-hmm. I realized there's a whole rainbow of colors of ADHD and women are the ones who have not been represented and I got really good at in some cases turning over the diagnosis realizing no yes yeah I understand you're depressed I understand you're anxious but the reason is because you're ADHD and this has been the consequence of struggling for all these years and not knowing the real reason Sometimes it was they were also anxious or depressed, and sometimes it was uncovering layer by layer by layer. The underlying cause was ADHD, and still I wasn't diagnosed myself. Wow, huh? Because I was, I thought of myself as high functioning. I was quote unquote successful. I was also gifted in childhood, 
And that there's a little interesting piece about that, I think. I think this is actually kind of confusing for a child that's gifted and ADHD, kind of teasing that out. But the way I understood it was that I was, in, I was adopted and I was adopted in a, into an abusive family. And so when I was identified as gifted in the fourth grade, my adoptive mother told me that the testing results were that I'm smarter than everybody else. And that means I need to do everything better than everyone else. That was mm -hmm. how the information came to me. So I thought, oh, okay. Well, it didn't really sound like a gift. It sounded like a great big set of expectations. And because I do have ADHD, I developed this facade, I think, because some things came really naturally and easily and still do. But my ADHD challenges meant that there was no way I was going to be good at everything. There was no way that everything was going to come easily to me. I just needed people to think that was so because that was the expectation that was set. And as you can imagine, that has made my life a lot harder than it needed to be. Oh, so yeah. by the time I finally did get the ADHD official diagnosis, I would say the last couple of years have been kind of a homecoming for me where I'm taking advantage of that information and choosing to share it openly so that I don't have to keep laboring under that expectation that I should be able to do everything, do it well, do it on my own, do it quickly. I don't want to live that way anymore. I wish I'd gotten there sooner. ADHD often makes you feel like you're playing above your head. Because there's days when you're the greatest person walking the face of the planet. Right. And then there's days when you don't know why they let you out of your house. Those days when you're not sure if you should be allowed out of the house. As soon as you step out of the house, you feel like you have to be the greatest person walking the face of the planet because that's where you were yesterday or that's where you were a week ago and you've been faking it for the whole week. Getting the diagnosis, I, I know for me, and it sounds like for you, has given me permission to sometimes be like, you know what? I have ADHD. And today is just awful. Like I just am not getting the stuff done that I would ordinarily get done or I am not capable of navigating things as well as I would like to. Last Friday, the heat and, and three weeks of not enough sleep because I was doing five days of work in four days because my kids didn't have camp on Friday. Mm -hmm. I had to make up the time somewhere and it was mostly sleeping or not sleeping, which is not something I ordinarily do. But by the time I hit last Friday, I was done. But I had the boys and it was a dad day and we were, I was doing my best, but it was, a, it was a pretty significant struggle. And ordinarily, the dad side of me, that's the easiest thing for me to do is to be the dad and support my kids. And especially when there's nothing else happening, when it's just like, it's just a day and I'm going to hang out with my boys all day. That's awesome for me. But it was really hard because I couldn't be the greatest dad walking the face of the planet that day. I really shouldn't have left my house, <laughs> both you know, because I'm dizzy and because I wasn't performing as well as I should. It's so easy to see why people like us are confusing to others, mm -hmm. because when they see us at our best, people are like, man, I wish I had some of that ADHD. Right. But then you'll turn right around and do the opposite. All the times through my life when people would say, you are way too smart to have done or said something that stupid. Or did you think this through or what were you thinking or whatever? And 
I always took those comments really to heart and because I didn't have a legitimate answer. Or the, you're really smart, you just don't apply yourself. Or he's really bright, he's just lazy. You're not trying hard enough. Yeah. And I'm like, if I try any harder, I am going to break. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think at this point in my life, and my middle son was never officially identified, but I have identified him, it's very clear. He's another creative. Mm -hmm. He's a musician. He's, he's traveling all over the world as a DJ and cool. just living a great life. But I, looking back now, I realize, oh, yeah, when he was six years old, he couldn't decide whether to wear the blue shirt or the red shirt. And I would lay out an entire outfit times two next to each other on the bed, the socks, the underwear, everything, and say, Honey, just pick one. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't. It was so painful for him. And he took a lot of the classes in college more than once because he would start the semester strong. And then about midway, he would start to peter out. And then by the withdrawal time, he'd have to withdraw. I see now so clearly this is his ADD. It brings up aspects for me that I have worked through and, and still continue to work through of guilt and shame. Guilt because I'm the one who passed on these genes. I know that now. Mm -hmm. My children are from two different marriages and I'm the only parent they have in common. So I'm the common denominator <laughs> and neither of my exes have ADHD. So that would be me. So I made my genetic contribution without even knowing. And then, not being aware myself, I'm not giving myself more blame than I believe I deserve because I was realizing these things as they were just starting to be realized in the industry. And as you say, I've kind of lived the history of the ADHD diagnosis in my own life and in my own family because you can't find what you're not looking for. Right. So you know, obviously I've explained to each of my kids, I've apologized to each of my kids and, but they don't remember bad things. What they remember is that I was the mom who didn't just read a bedtime story. I created multiple versions of it. I had a different voice for each of the characters and I was wildly entertaining because my childhood was not a happy one. So I got to have a childhood while raising them. And mm -hmm. I think most adults with ADHD can enter a child's world easily when we're not feeling the burden of having to be the parent. We can become childlike very mm -hmm. readily. I think that's such a blessing to children. That's the way my kids remember me. And they also remember sometimes I would forget to pick them up or forget to give them their lunch or sign things the wrong way or turn things in late or mm -hmm. whatever. But they also remember that. I was a lot of fun. And I, I think I directly owe that to my ADHD as well. I like to think of that. Um, I've coined a term for what you're describing about being able to go back into your childhood. And I, I call it empathic time travel. Mm. Where you can that works just, for me. Yeah, you know, like you can kind of like, I remember what that felt like. And even if you can't perfectly imagine the action figure doing flips or whatever, you can remember what that felt like and you can get close enough. Mm. So reality is still reality as opposed to like your five, six, seven-year-olds where reality is a little malleable and imagination blurs the lines and all that stuff. As adults, we're not as good at that. But 
folks with ADHD, we can often get there empathically and remember what that felt like. So even if we don't actually see the, the jungle or the coffee house that these action figures are in and these dolls are in, we can remember the feeling of that when we were kids. Hmm. And so that's, that's a powerful component of ADHD. I love that. Thank you. The other thought that you've sent me is um, to my mom who has passed away uh, about five years ago. I remember when I first got my diagnosis and I, I, was, I wasn't struggling with it, but I was navigating it and I was kind of wishing that, that things had been different when I was a kid, right? That like, like if people had just known I could have gotten these skills 20 years ago or whatever. Um, and I remember I, there was a day when I accidentally hurt my mom's feelings and I really upset her because she felt like I was blaming her, mm. um, which wasn't what I was doing. I was just sort of wishing out loud and processing what this diagnosis meant. So as a child, roughly of that era, I was in high school in the mid nineties. So that neighborhood as a child who didn't get the diagnosis until later, um, speaking to a mother who didn't get her kids the diagnosis until later. It's not your fault. As far as I'm concerned, my mom doesn't owe me an apology. Mm. Apologize for it. There's no blame here. It's just the way it is. Um, so if that's the least bit helpful, I thought I should share it with you. I love that. In fact, I, you're reminding me of a conversation, probably one of the most heartfelt conversations I've had with my oldest son. Well, a couple things. He, he was my troubled kid. Mm-hmm. He had a rough time. And I, I remember saying to him a few years ago, if you ever repeat this to your brother or sister, I will flat out deny it. But and now you're gonna I think, I, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I think I'm closest with you. He thought about it just for a second. And he said, well, of course, mom, look at all we've been through. Nice. And the other thing I wanted to share is that I've come to understand a lot about myself as a result of being identified as ADHD and kind of going back sort of time traveling through my own life and recalling different things and thinking, Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now Um, how I got into my marriages, how I got out of them. I made an offhand comment in front of my son about breaking up our family and I wasn't trying to get a reaction. I didn't even realize I said it. It was just, that's where my mind was at. And he came over and, put his hand on my arm and said, mom, you you need to stop saying that. You didn't break up our family. You just rearranged it. Mm -hmm. And I just felt this tremendous relief of all that guilt and all that shame and regret that I carried for, oh, probably a decade, just fall away. And I realized, you know, yes, ADHD can make your family much more challenging can also make it much stronger Mm -hmm. because you fight through these things together and even the really ugly parts over time still strengthen the bond they really do i agree with you and related to that i'm going to go back to that blame word real quick Mm -hmm. because it's a word that this is something i've been thinking about for the past maybe three months or so and it's sort of a crystallizing of ideas that have probably been poking around in my head for years, but it's a word and a concept that I, it just isn't useful, Mm -mm. but we ADHD folks, we're all for it. We'll take all the blame in the world, right? Yeah. Because we're used to taking blame and that's a burden we can carry. 
And the other side of that is something that we struggle with a little bit more. It's easy for us to take blame than it is for us to take responsibility. Mm. And responsibility is the word that's useful because that's the word that allows us to start addressing the problems that have been created or the challenges that we face in a way that is productive as opposed to just a way that wears us down and makes us tired. But responsibility takes some energy and some forethought and some executive functions that we don't always have. And it requires that we own stuff in a different way. It's ultimately empowering, right? It is. I think obviously blame is totally disempowering. Mm -hmm. Guilt can be useful if it points out what you need to do differently. Right. But as an ongoing state, it's not helpful. Shame is about the most useless of the three. Yeah. Because there's nothing you can do about being ashamed of who and what you are. But I like, I'm really big on personal responsibility as a concept. There are times in my life that I find it difficult to maintain a commitment to acting as though it's so. I'm lucky to have people in my life that will call me out on things. Mm -hmm. If I'm having a double standard or not living up to my word, being inconsistent. Inconsistency has been my biggest challenge. And so- Of course it is, you have ADHD. That's supposed to happen. I wasn't even sure I knew how to spell it for a while, but, <laughs> but I think um, just recognizing, no, no, no there, nothing's gone wrong here. There's no need to blame. There's no need to be ashamed. What am I actually responsible for? And am I living up to that? And where it's led me in my personal growth work is getting really clear about boundaries between what belongs to me and what belongs to someone else. And now that I'm not trying to manage other people's feelings as much, it's actually easier for me to manage what I'm actually responsible for. I'm still inconsistent, but I'm willing to shoulder the burden because I've tried really hard and continue to work hard to push everything back to other people that isn't actually mine. Because I was really so good at signing up for carrying everybody's burdens, even though I was struggling with my own. How do you navigate that? I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not empathically time traveling, but empathically audience traveling, I guess. And I'm thinking of, of my audience and I'm going, especially if I have younger kids, right? Like my kids are seven, eight, nine, 10 years old. How do I not feel responsible for their emotions? How do I not feel responsible for their stuff? Because I am responsible for, for a lot of what goes on for them. But how do we draw healthy boundaries around even that? Well, I didn't know this at an early enough age and stage to benefit my children directly. If I ever have grandchildren, I would like to be able to share it with them. But I don't personally believe we can hurt another person's feelings. I believe that I am responsible for my feelings. Mm -hmm. You are responsible for your feelings. And if something I do, unless it's really actively against you, if you feel hurt, it's because you were expecting something different. Think like for example, for example, no, I, I hear you. I, I, yeah. I understand. And it's, it's, it's a strong on. stance. It's a strong stance. Um, but for example, 
if Can I, I agree with you before you give me an, an example, because yeah. I, I agree with you in certain relational contexts. Yes. It's not across the board. And because your listeners are parents of children. That's where I'm disagreeing. Yeah. <laughs> all bets are off when the other person in the relationship is a child. I'm talking between adults. Okay. Between adults, I believe in every person is fully responsible for their thoughts, their emotions, their behavior, their choices, 100%. Mm -hmm. When it comes to children, I think it's the process of raising them well, where we gradually transfer that responsibility from us to them over time as they are developmentally equipped to take it on. It's one of the hardest things. And when your kids get to adulthood, as mine are, letting mm -hmm. them actually accept responsibility for their own lives and not continuing to try to parent them as though they were still children, that was a real challenge for me because by that time I thought I knew a few things and they were so used to coming to me for help and advice and I was so used to dispensing it that by the time they were in their 20s, I had to unlearn always being the shell answer man for my kids and actually start saying things that I didn't believe at first, like, well, honey, that sounds like a tough challenge. And I am fully confident you're going to figure out what to do and then zip my lip. And I would be like, oh, I can't believe I said that because I didn't feel fully confident. I, I was absolutely faking it. I just knew that at that point in their life, they knew what I was capable of. They hadn't yet learned what they were capable of. And as young adults with ADHD, they needed to learn and not always think, well, mom will help me figure it out. That would not be good parenting of adult children. That's a skill that I, I try to support my parents in beginning around middle school, usually like late middle school. Mm -hmm. And then up through high school is how to pull away strategically, how to help strategically, how to judge where are we? Am I overhelping? Am I underhelping? Because that time frame can be really tricky. Once they move out of the house, it's easier for parents to be like, well, you're on your own because they're not there anymore. But that middle school to high school range can be hard. And you want to make sure that you've got them so that when they leave the house, they actually are capable of being on their own. It's taking a lot longer these days than it used to. Do you have any guesses as to why that is? I think there are multiple reasons, culturally, economically. The way my children are millennials. Mm -hmm. So a lot of baby boomers like myself grew up coming to the awareness that we were abused. Like our parents used to beat us, right? Mm -hmm. That was the way parenting happened in the 50s and 60s. So that was the way we were raised. And then we realized, oh my gosh, we were all abused and we would never lay a hand on any of our kids. And so a lot of us were very permissive. And then there's a kind of a backlash to that. So and there's many reasons that go far beyond the scope of our conversation today. But I think the millennial generation on average and those after them, Gen Ys and so forth, where I remember being at 25 years old, it's taking them till 35 to reach the same place. And there's countless reasons for that. Our economy has completely changed. Our culture has completely changed. And, you know, my generation, if you were 19 and still living at your parents' house, you had failed somehow. 
now you could be 39 and happy as a clam in a mud bank with no plans to get out ever. So <laughs> it's a different, uh, a different situation all the way around. What are your uh, thoughts about it? It's interesting what you said about, and this is me going way off 80. Yeah, I, I get it. We're far afield. And that's okay. That's okay. You're going to be doing some editing. I know that. No, we'll leave it in. Um, but this is me going way off ADHD stuff, but still playing with mental health work, which matters. I see the the fifty the abuse of the fifties as a post traumatic response to World War One and Two. That makes sense. So World War One leads to trauma, which leads to World War Two, which leads to more trauma, which leads to institutionalized trauma around how kids are raised, mm. and that extends into the fifties because we also get Vietnam, we get Korea. So specifically in America, we still have some soldier and soldier stuff happening. War is traumatic. Yeah. Um, and then we then we get out of that as mm. sort of an extended piece hits and we're just now climbing out of that. Like the, especially the effects of world war two have lasted for forever. Mm. Um, a big reason why America is as strong as it is, is because we got to build up our economy while the rest of the world was rebuilding their buildings. And of course we beat everybody else. Like no one else mm. had a leg to stand on and they were borrowing. It wasn't a fair fight. Yeah. Yeah. So of course we were able to really dominate because everyone else was trying to fix their houses. Hmm. And, and now we're starting to hit this point where, okay, all the houses are fixed around the world. And what do we do? Like now everyone is in a different spot. But so I, I sometimes think about the echoes of World War II. And you just happen to touch on that with, with the, the struggles that kids in the 50s had and the, the abuse that was, I don't know that I want to use the word rampant, but at least not, not uncommon. I think it was pretty, I, I wouldn't say institutionalized, but it was if you talked about being spanked or, I mean, my adoptive mother went well beyond spanking, but it just didn't have the coverage that it does now. Mm-hmm. Teachers weren't looking for it. Um, it, it would like, like with ADHD, the symptoms would have to be really severe for anyone to have noticed. And now we're just much more aware. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I want to do a complete shift of topic, because that feels insensitive, but we also um, are running low on time. <laughs> Do you have any ending essentials you'd like to share with our audience? I, I would sort of tie our conversation together and pull it through my life story and history and experiences in this way. If you are the parent of a child with ADHD, you might be responsible that they are that way, but you're not to blame. Coming to terms with the fact that either your genetics passed it along, your partner's genetics passed it along, or you both made contributions, equal or unequal, it really doesn't matter. What matters, I think, is making the decision to accept your own traits if they're present, accept them in your partner if you don't share them, with everything you have in you. I practice what I call radical self-acceptance of my ADHD. I don't deny it. I don't glorify it. I just accept the things I cannot change. And I embrace learning everything I can about how to live my best life and be the best human I can, given the challenges and the gifts that I have. I wish I had come to that understanding earlier but I don't honestly know how I could have. I think my journey is typical of women my age who 
didn't have any way of knowing. And I, for one, am grateful that so many women now are learning of their own ADHD as a result of their children being identified. So whatever you need to do to get over guilt and blame and shame to acceptance for yourself, you will be that much a better parent to your child and go forward together enjoying both the gifts and creating a bond that's strong enough to handle all the challenges. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.